Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week is another big guest for me. It is Ian Burden, former member of the Human League. Now, he joined the Human League in the run-up to the recording of Dare. 1981, it's the album with Don't You Want Me on it. Landmark album, rightfully considered one of the most important records of all time. He sticks around for the Fascination EP that comes afterwards, the unfortunately mediocre follow-up to Dare, Hysteria, which we talk about in here, and then the very kind of strange and ultimately unpleasant recording of their sort of comeback album, Crash, in Minneapolis with uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And after that, he splits. He decides he's had enough. And he doesn't really do anything musically on on the big stage from then on until last year, after 30 years, he put out his very first solo album. And it's called Hey Hey Ho Hum. And it is very much, it's a lot of fun. It's very much in keeping with that sort of bright synth poppy sound that he brought to the Human League back in the day. Now, I have to tell you, the Human League are one of my favorite groups ever. I love everything they do. Even the stuff that's not very good, I still love it to pieces. And so this episode is jam-packed with music. I don't... One of our listeners posted, complained on Facebook recently... Dave, I think was his name, complained recently on Facebook that we put too much music in our episodes. Sorry, Dave. I couldn't help myself. You may just want to skip this one. Because the Human League were gigantic for me. And so I am so honored to have Ian on this show. And I have to give a huge thank you to listener Nigel Walters, Aussie bassist extraordinaire. About a year ago, he pinged me on Facebook and he said, what about Ian Burden? I thought, what a great idea. And so I sent Ian a a friend request on Facebook. He accepted. I followed up with a message. Hey, Ian, would you want to come on the show? Nothing. Almost a year passes, and I'm thinking, maybe Ian... You know, meant to reply to my email, but he was trapped under something heavy. And so I sent him another message. I'm still here. I'd still love to chat. He replied right away, and we did it. So thank you, Nigel, and thank you, Ian, for this incredible conversation. It meant a lot to me. Ian called me from his home in Rutland, England. So now the story with you is that Phil had basically taken over as the front man or the leader of the Human League, and he yeah. had to fulfill some live dates and had no band. All Ian Craig Marsh and Martin Ware, they were all at loggerheads, and those guys decided to leave. Phil apparently had to build something quickly to fulfill <laughs> this uh, contract of live dates. Yeah. And you yeah. were a local session musician, keyboardist, I, I, I assume. Yeah, I wasn't a session musician. I, I, I knew... Philip, because I was in Sheffield at that time. I'd been, um, <clears throat> I was a student in Sheffield, and okay. uh, Philip was living in a shared house with a girlfriend of mine. So I bumped into him, and he said, "Oh," and he explained the problem about this contractual commitments for a, a European tour and not having needed a keyboard player. Mm-hmm. Uh, synth, you know, someone who could program synths as well, which was quite rare in those days. Right. And, uh, so I said, you know, I said I'd ask around. There was a couple of people I, I could think of. I, one of them was not interested at all. He's more classically orientated, and the other one was a guy you probably know of him. A guy called Andy Peake was in the Comsat Angels, which mm-hmm. is a band. Mm-hmm. and it, 
no, he was far too wrapped up in in what they were doing. So, so I went back to Philip and said, "Look, I've I've not been successful here, but you know, if, if, <laughs> if you're really desperate, I'll, I'll, I'll do it." Mm-hmm. And then he said, "Well, he was pleased because he 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 said he'd wanted to ask me straight up in the mm-hmm. first place, but he was too ner- he said he was too too nervous." But mm-hmm. I mean, that is Philip. He, he's not. He, he's can be socially a bit uncomfortable in a lot really? of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he was back then. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a long time ago. So yeah, okay. And was he? Now you were in a band called Graph, and I looked up the song "Drowning." Was that, was the sound, I know Sheffield at this time was becoming a very experimental hotbed. There's bands like ABC, which came a little bit later, but there was Cabaret Voltaire, and you mentioned the Comsat Angels, who were great. Is uh, is drowning in keeping with the sound of Sheffield at that time? It was. There, was, there seemed to be a lot of bands with three people who didn't have drummers. So mm. uh, ABC was originally uh, vice versa. Mm. Uh, there's Cabaret Voltaire, Graf was another one. You know, we we just did. I just I think there was a shortage of drummers in, mm-hmm. in Sheffield at that time. But yeah, we were very much more inclined to 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 experiment. Yeah, with music, it was that post-punk new wave scene in in the UK, and I think we we're more interested in in just in in just being different yeah. and. Not not really concerned with pop music, really. Right. Uh, now, and, uh, Human yeah. League started out that way when they were the future and all that kind of stuff. But it seemed like, was that at the heart of the uh, sort of the separation between Philip and the other two guys? That was, did Phil want, Philip, I should say, want to go more pop? And was that sort of the cause of the conflict? I, I mean, I wasn't a party to any of the... <clears throat> conversations or arguments there but um my understanding is that they were all dissatisfied with the level of commercial success mm. they were, that they had uh, gained or, or failed to achieve right and i think they were you know they were all blaming each other yeah okay yeah and so um you know as i say you know i wasn't yeah, directly involved in in those discussions, but um, okay. So, were, yeah. had he already found the girls and come to you when he came to you and said, "This is kind of our new thing," or what? He'd uh, off 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 the back of that that tour, 
I said I'd, you know, pop into the studio and help out because the next contractual commitment was to deliver another album to Virgin Records as the label. And I said I would help out and I was putting together some ideas with Philip. um, And actually I was working on a piece, it was, well, it ended up being called The Sound of the Crowd. Ah, so good. (laughs) Yeah. We'd been working on that and I continued working on it in the studio and Philip went off out and about in Sheffield because he, um, he said something, he wanted to go and find a girl that could do backing vocals. Mm. He subsequently said to me that he was, he'd got the idea of a very, very tall black girl mm. with a good gospel mm. type voice. And so he went off on a mission, um, but he came back with two small white girls. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, yeah, and uh, whilst it, when he was doing that, I was still putting some touches to the, the sound of the crowd idea. So, okay. Yeah. Did he? Yeah. And then, so when you guys all go out and you're this new thing, and the girls are there, when you were invited formally, I assume, to join the band, did you think you were onto something? I mean, Dare now is obviously no. regarded as one of the most revolutionary albums ever, and I never know whether people kind of have a sense of that as they're creating it. No, we had no idea at all. No. We, we were just, we were just um, indulging ourselves, really. I mean, I was just enjoying the the writing and, and recording process, particularly, you know, working on programming synths. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, we hooked up with uh, Martin Rushant, mm-hmm. who's our co-producer, and and he was he engineered that material, and he had his own studio, and he had. A lot, a lot of equipment that we would have, could have only dreamed about, you know. Sure. So we, that we had access to his equipment and his additional knowledge on programming, and you know, it was the beginnings of sequencing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I heard you in another interview talk about the difficulties of building a song using the synths and the programming from the ground up, and how long it would take yeah. to work on what would now just be the simplest, you know, line or chords. That must have just been so time-consuming and painstaking at the time. You know, every single note required three numerical parameters to to define it. So you had a numerical entry for what pitch the note was, a numerical entry for where it occurred, and a third um, numerical entry to determine the length of that note. So you can imagine, you know, yes, it took a very, very long time. But actually the Dare album, there's not actually a lot of uh, sequenced elements on it. The majority of the keyboards were actually played Mm. either by by Joe Callis or myself. Um, I I think where it was sequenced, it's pretty evident when you listen to it, which which parts were. Okay. So you, I mean, I, I'm again going back to this idea of this album being sort of revolutionary. While it's happening, are you thinking to yourself, "We're really onto something here. We, um, this is different." There's, yeah, Gary Newman is out there, you know, kind of flying the flag for synth-based music, and punk has come along. But you're sort of almost doing your own version of punk in a way. It's less aggressive, but it's almost just as radical to indulge in these synths versus the you know, the guitar and the heaviness. Is that kind of what's going through your mind? Or are you just like, we're just experimenting here and who knows what will come of it? Or do you think we've locked into something really special? 
it was a, primarily a combination of we're we're experimenting. We we've got some idea that what we are doing is different, but though I think there was all we always had our ears tuned into it being accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, we we weren't going out of our way to be extreme or or too arty or too or too intellectual mm-hmm. about. You know, it was uh, we were doing what what uh, our, our, what our own ears told us we ourselves liked, yeah. and uh, yeah. and of course it was it was quite um, uh, a, a diverse input in terms of influences. I mean, myself, Joe Callis, and Philip had a certain amount of common ground, like things like David Bowie and Moxie mm-hmm. rock music and stuff. But then we also diverged as well. So mm-hmm. we we each brought slightly different angles into it you know i mean joe is very much a punk and also stacks motown oh interesting uh, you know i was more um the german bands mm-hmm. and and with a um i was very keen on reggae as well at the time. oh nice so okay. i do i do think you can hear all those little bits in there in yeah. in, in the mix somewhere okay know? I wanted to ask you specifically about some of the songs um, that are hits or that we all know that you've got a at least a co-writing credit on. You mentioned having worked on Sound of the Crowd for a long time. Tell us about the germ of that idea and what you know how what you were working on. How did it happen? Uh, I visited the studio and Philip had done this very strange rhythmical thing on the System One Hundred Roland system, which had a little, I think eight or eight step sequence or something like that, and it was a very peculiar rhythm. Um, and I had no idea what to do with it. I sort of kind of put a bit of a a reggae-type bass to it, and then had a, a riff that came from a sound I'd managed to program. Mm. And I, but I also I was structuring it in a way that was kind of novel for Philip because I, I pretty much defined sections as that is a verse and that's a chorus, um, which actually, when you listen to the the first version of the Human League, uh, listen to the. The, the structure of the music there it doesn't actually follow those no. those sort of traditions and that's that's joe callis and myself we that's certainly something we brought into it was mm. yeah a much more conventional way of structuring yeah okay okay what about love action that's you too isn't it
Yeah, I think it was pretty much me doing the instrumentation side of it and Philip writing the words. It was quite a, a, a pretty clear-cut, really? um, typical sort of songwriting partnership, music, and one doing guy, one guy doing music, the other doing the lyrics. Um, Were there, you in a room at the same time while this is happening? Yeah, yeah, both there, both there, and both working on programming the sounds. And I mean, Philip brought put in this kind of thing that sounds like a cat meowing that started <laughs> off, you know, uh-huh. um, and the funny little did 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 did, you know, that really syncopated thing. That was Philip as well. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Now, yeah. when these songs become hits, how how do you how does your life change? What's that like for you? I th- well, there's an element of surprise. I mean, you, we're j- just doing this music, so I, particularly with those two, The Sound of the Crowd and Love Action. I mean, I was quite surprised that Sound of the Crowd was a hit record in the UK. Mm-hmm. I hadn't anticipated that. I thought, well, it's good. I like it. You know, the, hopefully, I, ex- I anticipated that it was perhaps um, more... Um, more commercial than before, but not as commercial as being a hit record. You know, I, th- I mm-hmm. thought we, would, I thought we would gain a wider audience than um, the first version of the Human League. But I, I certainly wasn't expecting those two um, songs to to be, you know, quite major hits. Right. And Love Action was quite a big hit around Scandinavia and Europe as well. Huh. Yeah. So, were you um when he when you know Phil sort of plucked you out and invited you to join were you it because of Graf were you already an aspiring musician I mean was that the life plan for you like we're going to I'm going to pursue this and I'm going to try and become a professional musician and I want to be a rock star and tour the world was that in your mind Absolutely not. No. Really? No, no. I never got involved with, in music with the idea that it should be any sort of career. You know, it was something, I, I mean, I don't even remember learning things like playing the piano or, or the guitar. Um, I went to a very musical school and I was surrounded by, by it. So I kind of just picked up, well, you know how you, you learn to speak a language because you're surrounded by it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just something I could do. And I was involved a lot in other areas of experimental art in Sheffield, uh, movie making and video, all very experimental. A large amount of the experimentation was due to the fact that we we couldn't afford expensive equipment. So we were experimenting, you know, trying to draw as much out of what was available to us as possible. And so that was very much my interest in it, but it was certainly not uh, something I um, anticipated in terms of a, a career. Wow. You know. I think about that a lot in relation to you and especially the girls, because it almost seems more serendipitous, you know, more miraculous that they were in that nightclub at that night. But I, I wonder what would have become of you guys if that if Philip hadn't plucked you out of obscurity in a way to join his band that just happened to be making some cutting edge music that was going to change everything. I wonder where you'd be. Yeah, it's it's, um, it's it's a fantastic question, and I think it will would be fairly impossible to answer. I was looking at other things at the time when when Philip asked me to help out. I had um, I was awaiting an interview with the BBC oh. in, in London. Um, they were looking for people to train as technical operators, um, 
I'd also been offered a part-time lecturing job in Sheffield. <laughs> um, that, that, that was it. Was it was uh, two days a week for a hundred pounds per week. The human, the human League offer was full time for thirty five pounds a week. <laughs> you, can, you, you can imagine what my father's reaction was <laughs> when I told him. My father was a military officer, so that kind of just didn't stack up for him at all. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. Now, you know, like I said, we sort of touch on sensitively the business side of things when hits like. Uh, Love action and sound of the crowd and everything start taking off. Do you you must be seeing some royalties maybe that are at least making your dad feel better or changing your life or impacting your life in some way? That doesn't happen uh, immediately. There's a, okay. It's, it's a, there's a delay in that because the the pipeline for royalties is anything from. You know, if, if being in the UK, it would be six months uh, to see anything uh, from the UK. And then the rest of Europe, you would be looking at a year. Mm-hmm. And um, income from the USA would, was taking between 18 months to two years. So oh we were actually at, um, at one point um, in the UK, we had the number one single at Christmas time. And our album, Dare, was at number one at the same time um we had no money you know we were we were touring <laughs> and we had we had no money you know <laughs> that's crazy when <laughs> it did one thing i am curious is when it does come in how do you celebrate did you go buy a car did you uh take your girlfriend out to a fancy dinner did you go on a vacation what did you do buy a bottle of wine um well, when it starts coming in, you don't actually know how much it's how how long that's going to continue. Mm-hmm. That sudden inflow of money. I couldn't drive at the time, so I didn't think about a car. Um, um, I, I didn't have anything much to squander it on either. I mean, I didn't do any drugs or anything. So okay. Uh, okay. what I did do was go and I bought, I bought I bought a very large old house in Sheffield, which was falling apart, and it looked like a good, interesting project to um, re- to restore it. That, that's what I did. Okay. Is that your thing, restoring old houses and stuff? No, no, I've just never done it before. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so again, you know, you talk about money and that. I actually, this house was being ripped ripped apart around me. I was sleeping on a, a mattress on a floor in a sleeping bag mm. on a building site, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I think you, I think it. Took, I think you adjust very slowly to that sort of thing, you know, in little tiny increments. You know, I, I remember um, thinking because I still used to travel around on the buses, you know, and public transport, right. and it, it just occurred to me one day that I was no longer thinking about putting money aside each week to cover the cost of travelling on the bus. Mm. To me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do you understand what I mean? It's very, I do, absolutely. You, you suddenly realize, oh, hang about, you know, I don't have to worry yeah. about this anymore. Yeah. That's a really, I love the way you express that. That's a very, uh, I think everybody can relate to that. Now, when um, 
Don't You Want Me comes out. If I remember correctly, the label decides that this needs to be, I think, your fourth single or something. Philip speaking for the whole band, but he has no faith in this song. It was sort of filler. He doesn't really like it or think anything is special about it. Was it, are you in agreement with that? No, uh, that's probably I think one of the earliest disagreements I can recall. Really, uh, Philip and Joanne and Susan were very much against uh, it being released as a single. I think they had a logical argument, which was that. Um, uh, we wanted they were, the people would should be going to buy the album, and that song's on the album. Um, my view was that it was, although it was <clears throat> a long way from being a favourite track, you know, and I still have issues with with that song. Uh, but I did agree with uh, the record label uh, manager, Virgin Simon Draper, and our own manager Bob Last. I agreed with them that I thought if the object of the exercise was to have hit singles, mm -hmm. then that was the obvious song. So I sided with them, and they lent on me a little bit to try and persuade Philip to think otherwise about it. But in the end, the record company just took the decision, to, you know, and they had every right, they had every right to do so as well. So, sure. Yeah. When you say you have an issue with that song, what is that issue? And uh, conversely, is what did um, tell us something about that song that you personally contributed to? I think Philip has the sole writing credit on that song, but can you think of a part where you're like, "Yeah, I'm the one who came up with this." It it began with um, Adrian had a, a little sim simple one finger mm. melody and uh, played it to Joe. Joe completely altered the timing of it he, he syncopated it and then he built chords around it and then the bass part and a few other bits and bobs essentially joe put that together mm. as an instrumental wow. and philip wrote the words to it um it's credited to joe philip and adrian although wow. um well, it could be a sore point with me, actually, because ultimately when it came to recording it, I would say that I spent more time on it than Adrian did, but mm -hmm. um, that's how these things go. I mean, certainly yeah. 
I engaged with Martin Russian on programming drum fills and, and stuff. And I did a counterpoint bass part in the chorus sections. Okay. Um, it didn't occur to me to ask for a, 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 a songwriting credit right. on it. So, right. um, yeah. yeah, that story comes up a lot um, on here. I've done a couple hundred of these now. And yeah, it's not uncommon to hear that, that somebody and it's, <clears throat> you know, it's always especially <laughs> after the fact where it's like, yeah, I I contributed, you know, a drum part to this or a guitar solo or something. And then it goes on to be a hit and I didn't think to put a to fight for a credit. And now, you know, I miss out on the royalties for this gigantic song or whatever. It's unfortunate. But yeah, yeah, it, 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 it does happen a lot. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so now the the album has come out. Don't You Want Me has made you one of the biggest bands in the world. <clears throat> um, you guys decide to, I believe, go back to Sheffield and start working on Hysteria. My understanding of of the Human League's process in a lot of ways, I find this interesting pattern with the Human League. You you do dare and you blow up the world. And then Hysteria, you take a while. I'm not saying you personally. The band takes a while, puts out Hysteria. It doesn't do that great. Takes a few more years go by. Crash trickles out. There's one big hit off of it. A few mm. more years go by. Romantic comes out eventually. There's one hit on. It's like you got Human League sort of shows up out of nowhere every four or five years, has a hit, and then retreats back into into oblivion. Tell me about now. That's uh, I'm I'm extending beyond hysteria here, but tell me about the creation of hysteria. It, it it from what I understand, there's a lot of like writer's block going on, and how are we going to uh, continue the success? We don't know if we have the songs. I don't. I, I wouldn't say there was writer's block. I mm. Certainly, me and Joe were, were were churning out plenty of material, but, but there was. Um, it seemed to be bogged down. It was like all four wheels got stuck in the mud somewhere. My own personal view of that is that we no longer had um, Martin Russian, ah. who I thought was extremely good at uh, disciplining. The recording process um you know he would say okay today we're going to work on this particular song mm, okay. and he, and being the engineer as well um he commanded sessions i think the breakup with him was I, I, my my reading of it was that there was uh, a little bit of a power struggle between martin and philip Oakey on who was in control of the recording sessions and uh, that's my view of, of, of um, why hysteria took so long, um, okay. because I, th I think I think we wouldn't. There was a resistance to allow anyone else to be in charge mm. of it. But, that seems yeah. to be a common thread with Philip. Um, you know, he's he's reluctant to let Jam and Lewis take over on Crash. Um, he's obviously that's kind of at the heart of the Martin Ware and Ian Craig Marsh issues is mm. Phillips. I'm not asking you to disparage Philip in any way, but is that is is he sort of a headstrong um, micromanager in a way? Does he just not want to relinquish control if he can handle if he uh, can help it? I, I, I don't think I can answer that. I can only speak from my own direct experience, which is that if somebody is the lead singer 
in in a band, you cannot force them to do anything they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. That's the person who is at the front, yeah. who has the cameras pointed straight in their face, who everybody wants to talk to and interview, mm-hmm. and therefore is 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 got the most responsibility in in terms of um, public relations, as it were. Right. And I think it's perfectly reasonable that that person should be entirely comfortable with what they're doing. That, of course, leads to them having that additional level of power and authority yeah. within a because if they refuse to do something, that's the end of it. You right, know? right. Mm. Um, okay. Now, one of the things, and I want to get back to the Fascination EP here in a minute, but continuing along this line of hysteria, something that seemed to, so for instance, the Lebanon, I really love that song. It's one of my favorite human mm. songs. And, uh, but it's so different, obviously. She dreams of 2 with their follow-up to Lexicon of Love, they go a little harder with Beauty Stab. And it mm. seems to be sort of this theme almost with Sheffield bands. Like, we've we've blown up the world with our synth-pop album, but now we want to prove that we can rock, too. Was that a... Maybe I'm totally misreading this or I'm projecting something, but is that going into the thought process behind Hysteria? Like, okay, we've we want to... We want to be more manly. I mean, Philip grows, you know, a little bit of a beard and kind of a mullet, and he doesn't look like the new romantic guy with the makeup anymore. Are you trying to toughen up at all? I think there might have been a little bit of um, fatigue in terms of being pop stars at that time. I mean, mm. I certainly felt that way. Uh, um, and also, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't. I, I didn't personally didn't want to be, you know, constantly having to f- fiddle with my hair and, <laughs> and make every day. And so it did get a bit rougher in that sense. Uh, but also, I mean, um, you say the Lebanon. Clearly, there's um, a guitar input mm-hmm. onto that, which comes again from Joe Callis. And we had just done this experiment of making a pure pop album with only synthesizers and voices that experiment had been done there were also then a lot of other people doing the same you know you had mm-hmm. you know, the eurythmics and uh, the the thompson twins etc mm-hmm. um they thought well everyone else is doing our our game now mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone else is doing it the way we do it and so and yes that experiment was done so it's like well, what what else can we do that was the beginnings 
of digital technology, you know, the sampling technology was coming in, and that seemed like um, an interesting thing to explore. But again, we were overtaken on that because I think, you know, particularly the production team built around Trevor Horn mm-hmm. with, um, you know, this is stuff that Frankie goes to Hollywood, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, that yeah. were just far, far more competent than we yeah. were at embracing those newer te- te- technologies, you know. Right. Yeah, Trevor Horn's my favorite producer of all time. Um, now, I, something that got kind of lost in the shuffle here, though, is that you start playing, you're, you're playing bass as well. So, for instance, I Love You Too Much starts with this excellent bass line. That's you playing that? Yeah, yes, that's yeah, that's, that's played. Yeah, that okay. started actually with uh, with Mirror Man, which was yes. you know, again that was Joe Callis, and it was, it's essentially a Motown type of thing. some struggle with getting um, programming a, a, a bass sound on the synthesizers. So in order to just keep the momentum going and get on with it, I somebody suggested I just put it down on a bass guitar mm. for the time being, you know, it's a temporary thing, but it ended up being left on there because it just, it just <laughs> worked, you know. And that was all done in one take as well. I think it's the only thing I can think of from oh, that right. era. 
that when 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 the when someone pressed record and I played from beginning to end and it's without you know going back <laughs> no going back to patch it up or anything it's actually a live performance on there so. that's incredible wow yes. That's quite. That's actually quite gratifying when I think about I it. I bet. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you know when hysteria comes out and it's not quite measuring up. How how do you guys feel? I mean, are you are you even aware that the music that the album is sort of underperforming a little bit? Or when you're well, working on it and you put it out, do you think you know what? If we're honest with it with ourselves, it's not quite as good. I've grown to like that album. I'm not disparaging it or you know. But um, how are you feeling as it's happening? Um, I, I think you you just say okay, well it didn't do as well as the previous album, but then when we go on to the next one, we'll do better then, you know. So mm -hmm. you kind of it's not like you sweep it under the carpet, but you do kind of sidestep it in a way. Um, but I I, I I I was a little frustrated at that time. I spoke I've spoken with Joe Callis recently about this because we both felt that we pretty much had an album working with Martin Russian. If you put together Mirror Man, Fascination, mm -hmm. and um, the few songs we'd started, begun yeah. working, if we just put those together, there was an album there. You, you, you mentioned the Fascination EP. We were kind of halfway there, yeah. you know, with an album. And um, that's the album I would have liked to have seen, you know. I agree. I, and that was going to be my next line of questioning here, because so anyone who doesn't know, Dare comes out and, uh, you know, takes changes the world. And then in before work hysteria is done, I think the record company is coming to you saying we need singles right away. We need to get keep this this train rolling. And you guys mm -hmm. give them Mirror Man and Fascination, which are two of the best Human League singles ever, two best singles ever. And yeah. it's it's yeah. almost like. In a way, in a way, you guys almost kind of shot your wad. You gave the best songs you had um, up front, and I, I assume put out the Fascination EP as like a stopgap because we need to get you something while we yeah. continue to work on the full album. It's unfortunate yeah. that you couldn't have mixed it all together. That would have made Hysteria an even better album than it already is. Uh, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I can't. Yeah. I can't. I can't expand on that, John. Okay, you, okay. You put it exactly the way I think about it. I, well, I, I appreciate that. You have to, uh, Ian, uh, Human League have been in my blood since I was old enough to know what pop music was at nine years old, and I've loved you ever since. So I have a lifetime of theories and opinions and, you know, thoughts yeah. in relation yeah. to Human League that I'm now getting the chance to kind of express. So... Yeah. um was that so that was the issue though like we have to give the record company something we don't have a full album ready but we've got these songs here you remind me of gold and fascination and everything we'll give you the cp for now and you can work on that until we finish our album
Yeah, I think it's it's not so much us giving it to them as as them taking it ah. really. Mm. I think at around about that time, we well the arrangement changed a little later, um, but I, I, when when you have the, you know the contractual arrangement uh, with with the label is such that you know they, uh, can, they if they are funding studio costs in particular then they can't they kind of have a proprietary mm. uh, control over the material um, we changed that later on we, we took we took on board the costs of recording for mm. ourselves um, but that didn't seem to um, give us any more uh, um, power over was or wasn't released. Um, I think I think contractual arrangements involved in these things. I mean, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Right. Um, you know, I don't have any skills as an attorney. I can't go through those sort of arrangements to determine what you know how that power, how the power base uh, works there. But um, yeah, we didn't have any say on it at all. You know, and I think that later on with the Crash album. Um, the obvious thing to release was that song called Human, mm-hmm. which, was, which was, I think, I think that was a quite a hit in the USA. It was it? number one. I remember. Was it number one? Yeah. Yes, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, the follow-up to that was a song called I Need Your Loving. I remember. I You know, I, I, I mean, I don't, I can't speak for everyone in the band, but I, it, that would have been the bottom of, of my list <laughs> to release as a single. I remember in being in the studio, and I had to do my uh, my bits of vocal on that. I could hear it coming down the headphones. I'm um, standing there in front of the microphone, singing on this thing, and thinking, you know. I don't like this. I just don't like it. You know, all respect to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. I have uh-huh. to say that I didn't just couldn't. I I couldn't click into it at all. I, you know, I sang my bit, but uh-huh. then, but then when they said they were, it was going to be released as a single, I was astonished. You know, I thought there was a song that was actually written by the Human League called um, "Love on the Run." Great. Which, which certainly I believed, and our manager at the time believed that was the obvious hit single on yeah. there.
so it, it was it was kind of um, disconcerting when 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 um, the other one was, what did I say it was called uh, uh, I need your loving I need your loving yeah and uh, you know it was difficult to go around promoting you know doing TV shows and stuff if you're not um, not if you don't enjoy that piece of music how do uh-huh. you how, how do you promote it? You know, yeah. and that's where that's how I started to um, uh, distance myself from things like doing interviews and um, with, like with the, the video for Human. I, I said, look, you know, I I can't be bothered to be in it. What am I going to do? Mime somebody else's keyboard playing? I, I just don't want to do it. And you can see, John, how that's the beginnings of you yeah. are drifting. Uh, you're drifting away from the project. You know. Right. Right. So I I have some stories about everything you just said. First and foremost, I remember um, when I Need Your Loving came out and I love I actually love that song. Now I will admit as a grown as a grown up, it's one of my least favorite songs on the album. But at the time I loved it. And I remember being homesick from school. And whenever I would stay home from school, I would kind of sleep in my parents bed because they had a TV and they would be gone all day. And uh, I remember you could if you called the radio station during the day you were more likely to get connected because there were fewer people calling in to make requests and i didn't actually have the radio on but i remember laying in bed and thinking i really want to hear i need your loving and so i called the radio station and i asked and i requested i need your loving and the guy says are you not listening to the radio and i said no what do you mean he said it's on the radio right now and so I <laughs> lean over and I turn on the radio and it's it's actually playing. And so I, I little lesson what? to the kids out there, when you're going to request songs for the radio, have the radio on so you know what uh, is actually playing. That's quite a coincidence, isn't it, really? It really yeah. is, of all the songs, yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, But I remember that song kind of underperforming a little bit. It wasn't, you know, as ubiquitous as Human had been. Um, but yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll save some of my thoughts for uh, Crash for when we get there in a couple of minutes because I love Crash still okay. to this day. I probably, I'm sure I play Crash more often than Dare, to be honest. Do you? Okay. I, yeah. well, I, I, I really ought to go and give it a listen sometime soon because well, I haven't, I've not heard it for 20 years or so. Really? I yeah. think it's because that's the one... I was like nine years old, like I said, when Dare came out. So I wasn't, I loved hearing songs on the radio, but I wasn't quite old enough to go out and buy records and stuff like that. Whereas I remember getting Crash, I think for my 14th birthday and um, playing it to death. But anyway, uh, real quick, I want to go back to the fascination. Are like, so the beginning of fascination, is that a actual baseline? And are you playing that? Or is that a synth baseline or some kind of, you know, chord structure played on synths? Uh, the baseline on that is me playing, but it, that was, as I was saying about the very early days of digital sampling. So I played the riff over and over, and Martin Rushant and myself sat down and we picked out the best two bars mm, got it. And, and then looped it. Yeah, and then, I, and then and then in the bridge sections, that's actually played mm-hmm. uh, live. Yeah. yeah. Do you? Um... Do you remember filming that video? I do, yes. It do you was, have any uh, funny memories of the video? Yeah, it was um, in an area in the east of London, which was all due to be demolished. And everyone had moved, had been moved out 
forcibly. Mm-hmm. And um, during a break, uh, well, making videos is a very tedious process. You're just hanging around most of the time. And I went wandering off down this empty street and found one house had some people in it. And there was, and um, they were sort of, um, they had the door open. They were the peering out. Someone was peering out. And uh, said, oh, are you doing this video? I said, yeah. And they said, do you want to come in and have a cup of tea? So I went and sat in this house. <laughs> and they were standing fast. Uh-huh. Everyone else had been evicted, moved out of this place. And they were, they were refusing to move out. And so I sat and had a cup of tea with them. And they, you know, it was yeah. kind of sad. It was sad. You know, it was like, you know, their, their family history went mm-hmm. through that little part of London. Mm-hmm. You know, back through history, and they were being forcibly thrown out. And yeah. um, I mean, I, I don't. I, I think they they would have gone before the wrecking balls hit the house. Yeah, but, uh, sure. Still, all their their lives and memories and everything yeah, is being, yeah. you know, yeah. destructed. Yeah. Um, you know what? I just thought of this question. Uh, and if you if this is too sensitive, you can tell me. But did you, what was it, did you guys, uh, was there ever a fight to date the girls? Was there any kind of Grace Slick issue happening in the band? I mean, were you, uh, did you have a crush on Joanne or Susan or did one no. of the other guys or was it, was it strictly business or? No, it was, uh, I, I, well, as, as everyone knows, there was a relationship between Joanne and Philip, which, mm-hmm. um, which persisted for a long, long time. But did that's it? Okay. A, so really, yeah. So, um, okay. Yeah. I knew they dated. I didn't know how long or it lasted or what, how big of a deal it was. Mm, I think, um, well, I mean, they bought a house together. Oh, so. did they? Okay. Well, that's pretty serious then. Okay. All right. So, but you never dated Susan or no. anything like that? Okay. I'm just, you know, just figured I'd ask. They're pretty girls in the band. You're there 24 hours a day. I, things happen. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're driving at, John, but the answer's no. <laughs> uh, good, you're so, smart. You read between yeah, the lines. No, I can't give you anything juicy there because there is nothing of that to report. Okay, so, yeah. okay good, got it. All right, so you guys uh, kind of retract from the limelight, limelight for a while to go work on Crash. Uh, what, I think I remember Philip mentioning one time that um, – there would never be a human league box set because there's not a lot of songs laying around that aren't being used on albums. It's not, the band is not, you know, uh, proficient or overly just constantly writing songs. They tend to, you guys tend to like write for an album and that's sort of an arduous process. And when it's done, you move on. Is that accurate? Yeah. Well, I I can only, really comment on the three albums I was involved in. That's the imperial time, though. Yeah, yeah. um, It did that, that, it it never suited me. You know, I wanted to be constantly writing, constantly recording. Um, I I would prefer to be a workaholic in that sense. But, you know, if you're in a band, it's supposed to be collaborative. And if you can't get everyone you know, to join in with what you're doing, then, um, well, there's nothing much you can do about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why it took such a long, long time. You, just to, to get everyone to sort of knuckle down. Yeah. 
get stuck into it. Um, there just seemed to be too many reasons not to do it. You know, I'm, I, phoned, I phoned Philip one day and said, look, we, we really mustn't allow another huge gap between yeah. our, you know, we nearly, we need to get stuck. And he said, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I said, well, let's get together this week. When she, and he said, yeah, how about Thursday afternoon? So, yeah, fine, okay. We'll meet up in the studio Thursday afternoon. And he phoned me lunchtime on the Thursday and said, oh, let's not bother him. Let's go down to the snooker hall, play a bit of snooker, you know? <laughs> and, I mean, that was, that was very typical. That was, oh. that, that was um, immediately after the crash um, oh. album. Okay. Um, we'd been touring, and I thought, let's get back to Sheffield, let's start recording. And that was that was an example of of, of how things were going to progress. Right. And that, of course, that's the point at which I left. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I can't do. I can't. If I'm in a band, I want, I need to be working. Right. You know? Right. Uh, you know, I forgot to mention this earlier. Did he goes off and does together in Electric Dreams? Um, becomes a, I don't know that it's a chart hit in the States necessarily, but it becomes a popular song and he does the Giorgio Moroder album and everything. Did this yeah. cause any conflicts within the band that he goes off and has some success as a solo artist that's aside from everybody else? Was that a problem at all? I, I remember being very pleased. About oh, good. It. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we went and we helped him with the promotion on it. Uh, the Together in Electric Dreams uh -huh. song, the title song, uh, was released as a single, and we all went along to do all the to, to television shows. And, okay. Um, yes. Okay, so not a problem. Okay, good. Um, yeah, all right. I think we, we probably thought, well, it assists us, you know, to, yeah. um, you know, in, in the long run. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen Human League probably five or six times in the last 15 years or so, and they always play that song. In fact, sometimes they close out the show with that song. So it's a staple now. You guys sort of, not you guys, but the band sort of took ownership of it after the fact. So that's- Oh cool. yeah, we, we always had it in the, in the live shows. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, Crash, when Virgin Records comes to you and they suggest Jam and Lewis, who are black guys doing R&B music, now cutting edge R&B music. I mean, Janet Jackson's Control is a landmark album in the same way that Dare is a landmark album. Um, in Minneapolis, 
what are you i can't imagine anything more different different or a shock to your system than that what was that like when this suggestion was made um we we liked um stuff that jam and lewis had done mm. particularly um the sos band yeah uh, so when the suggestion came along for them to produce um it was well it's kind of they do what we do synthesizers mm. you know so it didn't seem like a massively um you know it didn't seem like it was culturally different to any great extent um i i, I think from my own point of view I, I i felt that um i was thinking about songs you know i'd been involved in writing i thought yes i'd like to hear them put their production touches mm. to that um what I hadn't expected was that it was actually that they didn't care really about ah. our material, that um, they were making a Jam and Lewis album, which is what they do, and yeah. they do it very well. But that it is, they make a Jam and Lewis album, and it's fronted by whoever they attach to that particular project, be it okay. Alex, be it Alexandra Neal, Janet Jackson, uh, whoever. That um, makes sense. They just, they just think. I think they thought they're making another of their own albums mm -hmm. with Philip Oakey as the front. Yeah. Okay. Believe vocalist. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, you know, you met. We mentioned Trevor Horn earlier. He has a bit of that as well. You know, bands like Propaganda or Frankie Goes to Hollywood. There's what's mm -hmm. left of the actual of those actual bands on the finished product. You know, he's in there kind of masterminding his own thing. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, makes mm. sense. So when you were touching on human earlier, come on, lady, dry your eyes, wipe your tears. Never like to see you cry. Won't you please forgive me? Are you even on human? Can you hear yourself or anything, any con contributions you made to that song? On that specific song? Yeah, on that song. Uh, no, not at all. Really? No, didn't, okay. I didn't play anything on it. I didn't, I didn't, no, I didn't sing on that one either. No. no. Okay. Um, you did write some songs on there. Money. I like, <laughs> I can't tell you enough how much I love Crash. Oh my gosh. Um, now, do you, I know you. <laughs> I will go and listen to it again, John. So, so, so I've got a better idea of what you're actually talking about. Well, it's it, you know it it drums up negative memories for you, but it drums up the most beautiful memories for me. So it's just we have a, a different history with this album. But now, so like money, you co-wrote that. Do you hear yourself on there anywhere? Or is it totally a Jam and Lewis thing?
Um, their in composition. I mean, what what happened on that album was that uh, we had demo versions of those songs. Mm. Uh, myself and Jim Russell playing keyboard parts. Um, but then um, Jimmy Jam would would then record, re-record mm-hmm. what we've done. So he he played. It's quite, it was quite an odd experience for me to see somebody playing my keyboard parts okay. for me, you know. Uh, <laughs> quite disheartening, really. Do you think that, uh, well, maybe this isn't a fair question. I mean, I was going to say, do you think that they uh, improved on it? But if you, or not improved, like they were better than you, but do you think that they took those demos and made something even more special? Or do you feel like if you had not, and I'm not trying to trash talk them because I love them, but if you guys had, for instance, given those demos to another Martin Rushant and put out an album maybe you were a little more comfortable with, do you think it would have been better? Do you think they would have been better songs? Or are you happy with what they did to your music? Um, I I think they didn't care about mm. our songs. I okay. think they just thought that those are the fillers yeah. on, on the album. I, I think it's slightly different culture in the USA. Um, but, you know, uh, an album is tends to be about one or two songs and everything else is just there to fill up space. Mm-hmm. So that certainly it's, it seemed that way at the time. Uh, so I think in, in the UK people are, are much more um uh album orientated you know you want a good album full of songs you know and uh that's um i just don't think that the the, the a and m records in the usa looked at it that way they want i think they were primarily concerned with the careers of jimmy jam and terry lewis okay uh, and that they th- probably thought they have an asset there in philip Oakey. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a, as a lead vocalist you know. okay that makes sense mm. um i'll just ask for my own selfish uh consideration probably uh, over the years the song on that album that i have grown to probably love the most is the last one love is all that matters especially There's a shortened version on a Human League's Greatest Hits CD, but I prefer the long version because I like the ending, especially. Do you do you have? Did you contribute at all to that? Can you or was that all Jam and Lewis, and you weren't even hardly there or playing on it? 
I was I was there, but um, I think that I mean certainly myself and Adrian and Jim Russell, who was working with us, we spent a lot of time playing table tennis <laughs> and, uh, and, what, and watching MTV, which was which was quite a new thing at the time, you know. <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean, it was sub zero temperatures in Minneapolis. Mm. Minus fourteen degrees, and, oh, and um, so the the thing for me was to, to get around Barnes and Noble a couple of times a week, buy as many books as possible, um, to have something to do because you guys, yeah. it's, 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 there was nowhere to go walking around. You no. know, it's like, it's like a, the studio is in a kind of um, almost a suburban district of Minneapolis, so there was nothing to go and see, and it was snow. Yeah. Uh -huh. Almost knee deep snow, <laughs> minus episode, yeah. And um, my recollection is just sitting around waiting for them to record everything. Yeah. Occasionally, you know, they'd say, Oh, Ian, can you come and sing this bit? You know, uh -huh. and, uh, oh, that's tough. Yeah. Did you ever yeah. meet or interact with Prince? No, we went to see him in Minneapolis. He, he, he used to keep, um, was it what was the band called? Was it the Revolution still? Yeah, I, I think it was still the Revolution in the eighties. Yeah, and he had when he still had Wendy and Lisa and all all those people and um, Eric Leeds and what have you, and uh, they were all on a thousand dollars a week retainer. So mm -hmm. every now and then he'd shake them up by telling them they were going to go and play, <laughs> right. play First Avenue. So we went down to, to yeah, just we got the message one afternoon that he'd decided to play First Avenue that evening and. Mm. Um, so we all trooped down to watch him. Yeah, it was a great show. I yeah. believe it, yeah. yeah. I only got to see him once before he died, but it's for sure mm -hmm. one of the best concerts I've ever seen. So, yeah. okay. So you uh, you decide to leave, and I I can kind of gather from everything you're saying what must have gone into making that decision um, with Crash not being a very satisfying creative experience and mm -hmm. uh, probably some creative tension. You're just sort of thinking, this isn't you know fun anymore. I'm not really getting to contribute. I'm not hearing myself. I don't feel heard. Um, right. And uh, now, was there bad blood between you and Philip, or were you guys okay? Was it an, was it a you know a cordial separation? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just um, I met up with Philip, Jan, and Susan. Philip and Jan lived in the same house, and I met right. there. Susan was there. And I just said, you know, it, I felt like, uh, you know how you, um, you, if you're playing, get, you know, the board game Monopoly. Uh-huh. And I felt like I was just going round and round. Yeah. Uh, picking up the 200 pounds a week or $200, <laughs> whatever it is on the US. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but, not, but, uh, but not putting anything down on the board. Uh-huh. You know? So just going round and round. And um, it yeah. was just... It was it was not for me. Um, Joanne suggested that maybe I just needed a break. Maybe I should take you know six months or something, and then come back to it. Um, and I just said, well, I, no, I, I can't do that. I just I've got to do one thing or another. Yeah. And, uh, Did yeah. you ever regret that decision? Um, I don't know uh, if you know when you've never regretted it. No, never. No. Okay. Um, I don't know if you were close enough to them or to or privy to hear the romantic album 
maybe as it was being worked on, were you even invited down to the studio like, hey, old friend, come listen to what we're doing these days? Or were you just kind of checked out from then on? Well, I was at that time, I was still living in Sheffield. Okay. So I did have contact with them. I did pop into the studio, you know, okay. a, a couple of times. And, um, okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, yeah. Nothing. And now that they're fixtures on the 80s nostalgia circuit, um, do you ever wish that you could go out and play keyboards on at all their concerts? Uh, I don't know. Okay. No, uh -huh. I'm, for, for me, it's all about creating from scratch. You know, I, I, I want to write songs and record. Um, I, yeah, I want, I want, my focus is always on, on wanting to hear something new, something different. I couldn't, I couldn't do what they, they do, which is yeah. to constantly be playing the back catalogue. Yeah over and over again i played those songs enough times as it is <laughs> right yeah well i think them and a lot of artists like them are sort of stuck doing that if they want to be able to pay their bills they have to keep that hamster wheel rolling that's the only way to make any money anymore so i guess yeah i guess so yeah yeah, yeah. i for one am grateful because i never got to see you guys back in the day so i've been able to mm. make up for it now um now so let's you put out a new album this year. Well, um, by the time our interview comes out, it might be 2019. So yeah. in May of 2018, you put out a, your first solo album in nearly 30 years. Hey, hey, ho, hum. Uh, what? First and only. I've well, I thought it, you did one called Looped, which I uh, heard about yeah. but can't find anywhere. No, it wasn't a solo album. That was me and a group of uh, friends. Oh, uh, that we were experimenting with the, the digital technology of the time. You know, we were having fun Got it. with playing around with samples and um, slightly ahead of time, actually, because yeah. that way of um, making music by by way of loops and digital samples was was uh, was only just beginning at okay. that time. Hmm. So, yeah, uh, I, I didn't. Uh, I I've never, I, ha I can't find anything on YouTube or Spotify or anything i couldn't even pirate it illegally <laughs> so i was uh oh, I, I don't even know what it sounds like but hey hey ho hum i've been listening to and that's great so what have you been doing for 30 years and then what made you decide now was the time to put out a solo album well as um as i said to you earlier before john um i never had music in mind as a career and at the point where i departed from the human league I was fascinated with what was happening with technology and there was a, a very broad landscape out there of digital technologies in, in all sorts of different areas. I had um, embraced th that technology in the context of music. That led me to doing solo work in terms of soundtrack music uh, for corporate videos, um, video commercials, TV commercials. That brought me into contact with areas of digital technology elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was more keen to pursue that. At, at that point, it seemed to me that music was a relatively narrow road mm. to be going along within that panorama of technology. And so I got into things like the very, very early days of building websites, you know, I was contributing. Oh. 
was contributing artworks, graphic designs, and of course the audio elements to some very early websites. Um, and that was interesting. That was interesting because, you know, in, in when the a time when the bandwidth was actually not width, you know, uh-huh, it was very, right. very, um, it was that was an interesting challenge to to to, to do as much as possible within the limits available and I've, I've always enjoyed that creatively you know having serious restrictions placed on the project and working within those restrictions mm-hmm. so that was good fun time i also had to um you know also i had to keep an income of some sort sure. so i took what what capital interests i had and i created a, a business which was um a property business so i had residential lettings to bring in a bit of an income i've disposed of i've disposed of all that now okay are you um i mean i don't mean to sound indelicate but would you it was there a time maybe at the height before the record industry crashed that you could have lived off you know mirror man and love action royalties at one point um I don't know. I mean, I still, I still get some income. Right. But I mean, I, I wouldn't. I don't. I don't think it would be. Well, it wouldn't be enough to, to live on really. Yeah. But it's yeah. a nice. It's a nice sort of supplement. Got it. To, okay. To my income, yeah. yeah. Okay. I think. I think that 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 um, Philip and Joe and Adrian perhaps do, uh, perhaps derive. A lot more income from mm. it because that don't you want me song? Yeah. You know, they have the writing credit on that. Yeah, that's and a big one. I, I can imagine that given that's the one that gets the extensive airplay, mm. radio, television, and it's the song that always gets put on compilation, compilation albums and mm. stuff. I imagine that they, yeah, they probably get a fair amount of income. Yeah, I would think so too. Um, okay, so what made you decide that now was the time to put out Hey Hey Ho Hum? And um, Let the Devil Drown is a great song. Yeah. Hanging Around is a great song. How, where where'd this urge come from? vintage equipment in uh, in storage in an attic and mm-hmm. I thought it was a sh- it was a kind of um, seemed a shame that they would just you know but I thought I'd better check them out to see if they uh-huh. still were 
and to think about maybe who would be interested in 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 having them and so in the process of checking them out of course i had to then connect them up to sequencers and keyboards and um because they were mostly modular synths mm -hmm. i had to connect them all up and i was finding i was just writing little sequences in order to be able to run those sequences through all these different synthesizers to check them out and i realized i was writing riffs and chord sequences and um yes and it was all coming together as songs okay so um i thought well i'll push on with this and i just i just thought I maybe this is this has been one of the issues i've had with music is the whole idea of a band yeah uh, you know i thought the technology now is such that i can I can do it myself, mm -hmm. and yeah. um, I'm, I'm, but my approach was to actually be a band, but where every member of the band is called Ian Burden. <laughs> so That's not on cost. That's for sure. And Ian Burden is quite he, he quite enjoys that bit of putting drums and bass together. Yeah. There's another Ian Burden who likes chords. There's another Ian Burden who's. Uh, the, the sort of annoying geeky guy who likes to spend hours and hours programming synthesizers and then there's the Ian Burden who's a typical impatient guitarist waiting to get in there and get on with it mm -hmm. so, so yeah. yeah yeah is the uh is there any possibility or chance at this point that you would play out I mean if you put could you go play at a club in London and put your name on a marquee and would people show up and you could play them some songs off Hey Hey Ho Hum? Um, Was that I, not what you even want? I, I, it, it's not attractive to me. Oh. I think oh. if they're, if, I mean, I've t I do have um, someone uh, who, managing my music interests in London, because okay. I live in the middle of the countryside. I don't really know anybody. Um, so it, the, the number of instruments I've layered up on there would, it would require quite a lot of musicians mm. to in order to do it live um so we have talked about it if we thought there was uh there would be sufficient interest if we could get a venue and do maybe two or three nights in one particular venue and you know put on some visual um interest to go with it yeah we might well do it, but um, okay. logistically, it, I'd, I'd need at least seven or eight musicians to, yeah. to come in on it with okay. me. Well, I hope it works out. Um, okay, I um, I got to go here in a minute, but I wanted to ask you before I do what your favorite memory is. What when you look back over your career, and you just you're you know you're sitting there in your study like you are now with all those books behind you looking good what when you think i cannot believe that happened to me what is it did you did you get to hang out with david bowie at the height of human league fame did you was it the creation of a song was it hearing something on the radio or a big show what's that memory i think really it's the the, the period of recording the dare album hmm. at genetic studios which is in which is a studio in the english countryside which is where i like to be okay and okay. it was a lovely really warm beautiful summer mm -hmm. and the work in the studio with martin russian was a joy it was a good um good atmosphere 
particularly when, when if you've got Joe Callis mm-hmm. in the studio with you, it's going to be a laugh. <laughs> I guarantee it. And uh, that that's my fondest memory is that that period. Um, and that's okay. when I hear the Dare album. That's what comes to my mind. It's that environment. I don't hear. I mean, I, I meet many people who say who talk about "Don't you want me?" And it reminds me of that mm-hmm. Christmas mm-hmm. where we had a lot of snow and it was Christmas. Of course, what I see is Genetic Studio in a gloriously hot summer in the English countryside. Oh, that's and, so and, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, uh, Ian, I couldn't love you more. I mean, I, I there are the handful of bands that have shaped who I am as a person. Uh, it's a small number and Human League is on that list and your contributions to that band and what you guys did and what you meant to me. It's a uh, few things have made me happier in life than listening to the music that you guys made, especially at that, that time. That, that's great to hear, John. That really yeah. is because uh, you, you, you don't often get to in, engage with the people who really love what you do. It kind of, you get interviewed by journalists and, and what have you who um, they're kind of doing it as, as a job. It's perfunctory. Mm-hmm. They've done a little right. bit of research, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it is great to talk to someone who actually genuinely um, is, 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 a, is a fan and um, actually uh, has an extensive knowledge. <laughs> I've been collecting this, this information on you guys for almost 40 years, so it was nice to finally talk to somebody about it. I really appreciate it. That's great, John. I've enjoyed it. Good, me too. There you have it. Ian Burden. I hope you guys enjoyed that. That meant the world to me. Worth the Human League special? I love every song. I just They are the best. I want to close it out with another song off of Hey Hey Ho Hum. This is Another Day. And I really like this track. So if you want to check it out, it's on Spotify and everywhere else. Go give it a listen. It's great. And again, thank you, Ian. I love you so much. And Nigel, thank you for the suggestion. You're the best. Also, I'd mentioned before that we had a special guest who had agreed to come back on and do a deep dive with us, but I hadn't. I didn't want to announce who it was because their episode hadn't come out yet. It's Ian. Ian was will. It said he is willing to come back on here and deep dive dare for us. I have to admit, my my twisted mind is almost a little more interested in what the story of hysteria might be, since that's sort of the uh, you know the troubled follow up. But I'm sure I'm the only one who feels that way. So in the next. In the future, near future, Ian should be back on the show. We're going to do a dare deep dive. I hope you guys enjoy that. Um, Next week, uh, I think next week we are going to be hearing from, this is a good one too. We're going to be hearing from one of the most, one of the most really important or revolutionary producers of the 80s, college rock specifically. Maybe I just gave it away who it is. Anyway, you're going to want to come back for that. He was also a recording artist, so there's his music and there's the music he worked on to discuss. It's great. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man for helping us out. Thanks, Yan, for everything you do. We appreciate it. Also, you guys know how to find us on Facebook, and you can like our page. You can send us a message on there. I've been hearing from more people on Twitter, which is still kind of new to me. So you can find us on Twitter, at The Hustle Pod. And there's always email, uh, thehustlepod at gmail.com. Uh, we have a bonus, the first deep dive episode with Matthew Seligman discussing Thomas Dolby's Flat Earth album is coming out later this week. I hope you enjoy that. And uh, there you go. We'll be back next Tuesday. Bye, everybody.
Hey, hey, hey.